Ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles. Close your eyes and I'll kiss you tomorrow. I'll miss you. That I'm kissing the lips I am missing And hope that my dreams will come true And then while I'm away I'll write home every day And I'll send all my loving to you episode of Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your written word McCartney all of the time. I am your host Sam Wiles, and remember, this is wide screen podcasting. This is wide screen podcasting. Thank you all for tuning in, for tuning out, and I hope you're all well, safe, and sound. Alright folks, after months and months of hype, it has finally dropped. A work of unprecedented scope, insight and all-around information has come roaring into our lives in the form of Paul McCartney, The Lyrics, by Paul McCartney and edited by Paul Muldoon. For the 5% of you not in the know, this book slash these books slash this behemoth is a hybrid of a song-by-song breakdown of McCartney's career-spanning oeuvre, as well as a pseudo-autobiography, or at least the closest thing to an autobiography that Paul himself will ever work on in earnest. This is going to be the first of what I imagine is going to be a, a rather lengthy series of Paul McCartney book reviews, as that is what he's been releasing of late, and that's what's also come through my front door. We've got Grand Dude's Green Submarine, 
Blackbird Singing, Paul's Book of Poetry, and of course the Get Back Companion book to Peter Jackson's upcoming docu-series. And even though I was already in possession of all of those books well before this Leviathanine tome landed on my doorstep, I know you're all clamouring to hear my thoughts on this one, as many of you, I am sure, are still wondering whether you're going to be buying it in the first place. Basically, I'm going to be dividing this episode into a few sections. Firstly, I'll go into the background, both of the book and my feelings towards it going in. Then I'll go through the contents in full, before capping it all off with a somewhat brief, I imagine, hopefully, review of my with my overall thoughts as to the product as a whole. As always, nothing too revolutionary, but I hope that I'm going to be able to give you today a comprehensive enough view on this text without giving too much away that might be able to inspire you to go out and make your mind up whether you want to purchase it for yourself. Because maybe, hey, maybe if I can shift enough copies here, maybe Paul will invite me down to London for a cup of English tea. One can hope, anyway. Speaking of which, once again, before we begin, I want to take the time to thank my loyal Patreon patrons, my wonderful family of supporters who made this episode possible. Without them, I would not have been able to purchase this release with the carefree abandon that I did. And so I can only express my most sincere gratitude that I'm able to bring this episode to you all here today. Here today. But anyway, now that we're done with the pleasantries, we do have to get on with the formalities as we move on to the... Housekeeping! So, what do we have in terms of news for today? Well, not that much really. It's all been about the release of the book we're talking about here today. Don't worry, I'm not going to do the joke again. On November 5th, though, Paul gave his live interview slash discussion at the South Bank Centre in London to promote said lyrics book. I know many of you listening right now will have either attended or watched the live stream from your own homes. Sadly, I was working that day, and why is that relevant? Well, a very kind listener actually offered me one of their tickets to go and see it with them. However, I'm in Birmingham. It would be quite expensive for me to get a train down to London on the day and, you know, get someone to cover my shift at the last minute. Wouldn't be very easy to do. But let me just give a huge shout out to that person who I will allow to remain anonymous. I don't want to embarrass them on the air or anything but that was so touching and yeah it would have been wonderful to go myself because yeah I'm not that comfortable spending yet more money just to hear Paul talk about stuff that's probably already going to be in the book anyway however I did have a couple of moles at said event and I'm sure when I speak with them next that they will fill me in on all of the details and gossip therein also Speaking of said moles, I know one of you met them, uh, Roger Simon slash Simon Rogers, the London editor of Beatle Fan magazine, and one of you actually brought up his appearance on Macca in Your Attic, our sideshow, which made me feel very special and very famous indeed. Thank you very much. Also relating to Paul's appearance at the South Bank Centre in London, the Daily Mail, a rather naff little tabloid newspaper here in the UK, posted an article about... Paul crossing a zebra crossing like that was the news piece of the day and whilst that was already quite annoying in itself but not that offensive it started off with the phrase I guess it's something in the way he moves which for anyone listening to this podcast will be a hilarious gaffe as those are of course George Harrison lyrics 
It seems like there were also a couple of errors in the previous Let It Be episode, and in the classic way of the internet, you'll always get a comment quicker for stating something false than if you said something correctly. And several of you out there listening right now were more than happy to point them out to me. Uh, the first comment comes from our Facebook page from one Mr. Kev Boyd, who says, The version of One After 909 that you play is nothing like the Glyn Johns versions that I'm familiar with. Not just a different mix, but a completely different take entirely. And to the best of my knowledge, isn't in, isn't on any of the various mixes that John's prepared for possible release. I haven't done a detailed A to B comparison as life's too short, but the new mix sounds virtually identical to the one that I've known for near enough 35 years. It's fine to wish for a rougher mix, I'd wish for the same, but the Glyn Johns version isn't ever going to be that. Yeah, Kev, I did kind of goof there. The version that I chose to highlight was probably more, again, like you say, done to give an example of what I personally would have wanted for a Glyn Johns mix rather than choosing what was originally the Glyn Johns mix for actual comparison. Though I did point out in the episode that I was at the behest of YouTube pages that would purport to be said mix. But yeah, point taken. Our next comment comes from our YouTube page from one Andrew Ridge, who says, Excellent to get another program from you. I love the podcast being called a program, that's great. But he continues, The Get Back album that was circulated in 1969 does not use the version of One After 909 that you played, as rambunctious and as charming as it is. It's a completely different take and a rougher performance. I have a bootleg of Get Back on LP since 1984, and it has used the same take from the rooftop. This is in the film and Let It Be LP, albeit with Spectre's mix. The Get Back album mix of 909 in the box features the precise mix that was on that bootleg, right down to the hard panning of John and Paul's vocals from right to left. Spectre's mix centred the two vocals. There is a small discrepancy between the bootleg and the disc 4 of the set. The New York fellow who reviews the pressings of quality Beatle LPs and sells them online recently pointed out that the left and right channels of the mix have been reversed. I went and listened to Glyn John's 909 on Spotify just now, first time so thanks, and I'm happy to confirm its authenticity, and that the channels are reversed compared to my LP and CD bootlegs. The thing about incorrect playback speeds may be true though, the pitch of my CD bootleg is a hair lower than the LP, hard to say as tape speed issues were common in those days of analog bootlegging. There could well be four assemblies of the album by John's. The Get Back LP as presented and the original bootleg seem to be the second. My Italian bootleg CD from the 90s has all of the second assembly except Get Back itself, forgivable as is on past masters, along with some of the first assembly of mixes, which includes the raw take of the familiar Get Back without the coder, like Spectre's. The Walk also appeared in that first selection, and a not-as-dry mix of the Hitted Bill take of Don't Let Me Down. There's definitely a third assembly, which is based on the second, but it drops Teddy Boy and picks up the mixes of Across the Universe and I Me Mine, which are now disc 5 on this set. A few years ago, I saw a Russian Federation fake Japanese bootleg CD on eBay of what claims to be the third iteration, but I wasn't in the mood to gamble. You mentioned a fourth with old rockers thrown in. I hadn't heard of this matter on the Japanese edition though, which is interesting. Oh, and by the way, Paul played the piano on For You Blue, which was done before Billy arrived. It's in the Let It Be film. George Martin had treated the piano strings with paper to give it a tack piano effect. 
I was saving not listening to disc four until I had time and inclination to hear the whole of it. However, I'm glad to say that I heard some of it this morning. 909 seemed legit in its context, and a few others. It simply wasn't that rough by the standards you're imagining. Universal doesn't seem to remove much of the rehearsal stuff from YouTube, but I don't recall seeing the actual Get Back album on there. Postings may go up and get removed quickly, I suppose. I've seen things claimed to be the lost album that came entirely from the Nagra reels of random rehearsals, though. I truly can't wait to hear all of Disc 4 properly now. That Glyn Johns really was a madman. I've wondered for decades about the running order towards the end myself. You'd be welcome to hear my bootleg. It might put your mind at rest about Disc 4. Discs 2 and 3 could definitely have done with a broader selection of song material, though. Oh, I don't recall the super deluxe of Sgt Pepper being on Spotify for a good while either. It was months before I bought it, so I surely would have had accessed it if it were there. Cheers anyway. As always, let me just thank you, Andrew, for taking the time to give such a detailed and thorough response. You tackled more than just the mistakes I made there. Thank you for confirming my suspicions that the Sgt Pepper's bonus material was not on Spotify, and I reckon that was a mistake that... You know, Apple and the Beatles never wanted to make again because all those downloads go towards the album sales in the end. So it makes sense why they've put it up on streaming platforms right from the get-go, even if it does remove some of that special quality. Yep, you are right. There is an awful lot of stuff on YouTube as well claiming to be the original Glyn Johns mixes and there's all these bootlegs to sift through. But to me, that kind of investigation makes the search more interesting and (laughs) more fun than anything else. I really must thank you, though, for pointing out the fact that it's Paul on the piano for For You Blue. I really should have looked that up sooner. And, yeah, it, a lot a lot of stuff I, I hear and thinking is guitar is actually just Paul doing that piano with that special kind of sound effect laid over it. And, yep, yeah, like Kev before you pointed out, the one after 909 mix that I used was probably an incorrect one. But, you know, I guess I'll just have to live with that. But yeah, so much to go through there. Uh, that, that was so much information that I'm glad you were able to share with me there. I guess I was just so caught up in trying to make sure I had something to say about each of these mixes that I didn't take the time to do the necessary background work in all of them. But hey, I'm glad you still enjoyed the rest of the episode. Though. Thank you for so much for that, Andrew. And finally, we have another little comment from our Facebook page. Well, part of a comment anyway, and this comes from one Adrian Mist. He says, Finally finished listening to this, and very enjoyable it is. Surprised you hadn't noticed the tambora on Across the Universe, as it also features on the Let It Be Naked mix too. Yeah, uh, I actually told Adrian this already in a private message, but folks, the reason that my recollections of the Let It Be Naked stuff may be a little bit rusty is purely a personal reason. Um, I had a girlfriend many, many years ago whose father I bought a copy on CD for, for his birthday. That copy was stolen when his car was broken into, so that didn't go well at all. And then in a more recent relationship that broke up on very poor terms indeed, um, my partner there, she bought me a copy of Let It Be Naked on vinyl and she took it back. Uh, when things went sour. So, yeah, I've, I've never rushed back to listen to it in earnest. There's still a lot of painful emotions there, I guess. But, hey, the fact that I blocked it out meant I could reappreciate the the tambora on the Across the Universe mix even more. So, 
hey, there's ups and downs. Of course, there are many ways of getting contact with the podcast, including our email. Drop us an email at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Maybe you don't want to just point out hilariously stupid mistakes that I've made on this show. Maybe you just want to say hi, or maybe you want to tell me a factoid or a piece of trivia in your own right, or maybe you even have your own Paul McCartney story. Anything and everything, I love to read it out here on the show. Drop us an email at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Follow us on our Twitter, which is at McCartneypod, for more day-to-day updates, as well as seeing a true window into my own madness. Uh, For more written word Paul McCartney content, Paul or nothing content, should I say, check out the blog, the sister blog, at paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com, some extra articles that never became episodes, as well as a few that did. Onto the socials now, follow us on Facebook, Instagram and YouTube, simply by typing in Paul or Nothing or Paul McCartney Podcast. Of course, YouTube is the only place you can find brand new episodes of Macca in Your Attic, the sister show to Paul or Nothing, where me and an esteemed guest, usually someone from the podcast history, this week it is Dylan CV, and me and Dylan will go through his attic, dust off a few cobwebs, and we'll go through some interesting, fun, unique rare, sentimental, or maybe even valuable items from their Paul McCartney slash Beatle collections. If you love the podcast, you'll love Mac It In Your Attic. Go and check it out now. And if you want to help out the show in a way that takes less than 30 seconds, then maybe you would like to consider leaving us a review on whatever platform you're listening to this podcast on, whether it's stars, a thumbs up, or even a nice little comment. It's all greatly appreciated. It gives us the little boost in the algorithm, gives us the exposure we need, help grow the Paul or Nothing family. However, if you want to help out the show directly, if you want to help us keep the lights running, if you want me to have access to more product to review, like this episode and the last episode, or maybe you just want to chuck a couple of dollars down my face every month down the internet just because you like the show, then please consider joining our Patreon family. As I'm sure you know by now, Patreon is the platform by which you, the public, can support independent content creators such as myself. However, it is not just a GoFundMe. It is not just a charity. You do get your money's worth. By becoming a member of the Paul or Nothing Patreon, you get two-day early access to episodes of Paul or Nothing, including this one. You get one week early access to episodes of Macca in Your Attic. You get access to the scripts I do for the show, as well as lost episodes and bonus content that will never be released on this stream. But... Arguably, the greatest benefit of the Paul or Nothing Patreon is the access to the video feed. I do all of my interviews now on Zoom, and the moment they are recorded, even well before the editing process, they will go straight up on the Patreon video feed, giving you unbelievable early access to unfettered, unscripted, unedited, raw, visual Paul or Nothing content. If watching a podcast is more of your bag, then please go and check that out. It will be definitely worth your time. Also, I've got to give a huge shout out to the Patreon family. Of course, can't do it without them. Thank you, everyone who is continuing to be a part of this little project. Thanks to Mr. D-Dubs, Andy Cochran, Guy Jenkinson, Nancy Twoey, Richard Campbell, Christopher Newman, Mrs. P., Broderick Harper, Moti Ryber, Robert Shuley, Christian Perry, Richard Driver, Chris Atkinson, Richard Binnington, Mr. B, Teresa Brader, Stephanie Miller, Lou DiLonardo, Cheryl McCoy, Katrina S, Sam Hode, Anastasia L, Warren Butson, and Matt Phillips. Anyway, whew, now that all of that housekeeping is done, let us put on our reading glasses and wax lyrical on a book of lyrics. 
So let's dive right into my long-winded, extended rambling preamble about the background of this book and how I, and by extension you, could, should, maybe will approach this text. As some of you may know after my conversations with Joe Wisby, I am not a prolific reader by any means. Though that is not to say I do not enjoy reading some types of books, it's just I've always erred towards non-fiction texts over fictional works as I just tend to find them easy to absorb and I just prefer the anally retentive borderline neurodivergent collation of facts and trivia rather than just getting lost in a narrative. And so you may assume that this book might be perfect for me. However, I've also always struggled with biographies, particularly McCartney ones, as I always tend to run out of steam before the end of the book, leaving many closing sections of my McCartney biographies on my shelf unread. And instead, I tend to cherry-pick the sections of whatever episode or album review I'm doing next. This doesn't mean I don't enjoy the stuff I do read, and I would be lying if I said that those texts were not still the single best primary resource for finding out unique information and quotes. It's just that I do have a woefully short attention span, and I am far more geared towards reading websites like The Paul McCartney Project, The Beatles Bible and Beatle Books. Now, on in theory, this book really should be up my alley, but the combination of the biographical element along with the facts and the figures and what the song definitively means about meant... I was a little bit apprehensive in the sense that I was worried that the book was going to be just an excuse to have a biography in a format that would be more geared towards Paul. And whilst that kind of still is the truth, and we'll get into that more later, there's also my innate uh, (laughs) unease with my own lack of discipline. Um, It does take me so much effort to sit down and read a book in its entirety. And with these book reviews... Uh, along with the uh, the Lady B book last week and other books I'm going to be reviewing in the future, I, I don't just quickly gl- glance through and then give my thoughts on it. A, because that's not what the author would want, nor the publisher really, but I really feel like I'm very bad at absorbing information like that. Like I really need to kind of take in a book as it were. Although, if there was going to be a Paul McCartney biography, I guess that this would be the best way for me to read it, as, you know, it would satisfy my kind of nerdy fact-collecting mindset, as well as giving me the skinny on Paul's life. You know, a lot of you will know, from the fact that I do this podcast, I am a pretty big McCartney fan, but... Not so big that I will just automatically devour everything he will release, especially when it comes to the written word. Now, am I saying that I wouldn't have bought this had it not been for my wonderful Patreon family? Kinda, yeah. I mean, if I was just working on my own budget, then I would gladly just focus on the music and the music alone, and we would probably be doing some sort of other episode instead. Maybe me and Andrew Dixon would have been talking about the Festival of Culture for Liverpool or something like that. So for the full sake of transparency, I am going to be reviewing this book under the specific proviso that it was bought for me by my wonderful patrons. And so any question of value should be taken with a grain of salt. Of course, I also need to point out a couple of facts that I was fully aware of, but do need to point out going in, yes, this book was not written specifically for me. This is generally much more of a 
public general consumption kind of product. You know, I'd like to think, as a McCartney podcaster who's reviewed all of his songs up until Off the Ground, that I know a lot of stories behind his songs and I know quite a bit about his biography. But yes, of course, there's going to be stuff that I'm going to be rereading here for the sake of it. And there are going to be many, many songs where I don't really learn anything new at all. Paul has spoken about a lot of these songs and about his life in interviews and previous books before. So the likelihood of any new jaw-dropping revelations are going to be quite small. So in terms of me like finding out new stuff, which is kind of what I go for whenever I buy something of Paul's, um, you know, same, same with the music, I'm more interested in the bonus features. That's kind of what I'm looking for in a book like this, you know, the bonus stuff, him dropping some new bombshells on us. And yeah, I know that that's not going to happen. So I will also do my best to go in with the right expectations. Anyway, enough about me. Let's talk about the text itself. Prior to this, the closest thing we've had to a proper fully sanctioned, fully endorsed biography was Barry Miles' Many Years From Now, which is still one of, if not the greatest single resource on Paul McCartney's early life Beatles career and early post-Beatles career. We've also had Paul DeNoye's Conversations with McCartney, which has a very similar loose, non-linear style as this lyrics book. Go and check out my episode with Paul DeNoye if you haven't already. And on top of these two, we've had innumerable biographies and song-by-song breakdowns. However, none of them have come straight from the horse's mouth. And this is because McCartney, A, as he details in the book, is perennially busy, and B, a notoriously private person. And yeah, of course, this is going to be one large review, but just objectively, I must point out that this release is rather unprecedented within the McCartney canon. And regardless of new revelations that may or may not be found within, I and we should certainly be grateful that he's even managed to release this at all. I mean, in terms of a workaholic, I'm genuinely bowled over that he's managed to find the time to even put this thing together amidst touring, Egypt Station, McCartney 3, the Get Back film, the Beatles' 50th anniversary editions, music videos, his children's books, and that It's a Wonderful Life musical that we've heard no word on since it was first mentioned all those years ago. Of course, the main selling point of this book is neither the fact that it's a text about the songs or the fact that it's about his life, but the fact that it's directly coming from Paul himself. I'm always fond of media where artists get to speak in their own words, on their own terms, speak their own truth, if you will. And come on, how could you not be fascinated by the prospect of Paul himself directly directing you through his discography? And the idea that there is not going to be any authorial supposition or armchair psychology within the book. You know, Paul's never really been that introspective in that sense. And so I was kind of just looking forward to a very matter-of-fact, simple, honest take on his life and his work. Though that is not to say that the reactions to this book will not be without lengthy interpretations to what he really means or to what he's obfuscating from us as readers. You know, being the fact that he is a notoriously private man, Paul does leave a lot of wiggle room for people to second-guess him and interpret what he really means. And, you know, throughout history, a lot of people have been very negative towards Paul in this sense. You know, they rarely ever give him the benefit of the doubt. They always seem to think there's something more 
sinister or cynical going on there. And, you know, after listening to as many McCartney interviews as I have, as many uh, texts and articles I've read about Paul over the years, you know, I've never really got that. You know, unless the conspiracy is so far-reaching and he's really this media man that is just lying all the time and always putting on a, a brave, happy face... Um, my interpretation has always been that he has always been really honest as far as he wants to be, and he really has been quite revealing as far as he wants to be. And a lot of the time, the stuff that he doesn't reveal, as trite as this sound, is more revealing than he would probably ever want. And you can build up a very accurate narrative of Paul's life in that way. Talking about the lyrics, though, what I do find interesting is that it is a book specifically on the lyrics of his career, and his lyricism has never always been something that's been consistently lauded by critics or in the greater public sphere. I mean, I, of course, as a host of a Paul McCartney podcast, in my own openly biased way, consider Paul to be one of the greatest lyricists of all time. But I would never have pegged himself to consider himself all that special. As the myth goes, Paul was the melodist and Lennon was the lyrical poet, and together they made the Beatles. Then, as the myth continued, you know, there was this talk that Paul's lyrics have never been as strong as they were since the Beatles broke up, which is utter bullshit. It's bollocks. But the notion still pervades to this day. And to see Paul bare his soul like this and analyse not only Beatle lyrics, but the lyrics across his whole discography seems like a very positive step in his life and in his own Mental health. You know, this man is now in his 80s. The project began in his mid-70s. And it's nice to think now that after all these years, that Paul may be actually beginning to appreciate the fact that he is one of, if not the greatest songwriter in history. No, not just the greatest bass player or the greatest melodist or one of the greatest orchestrators or producers. One of the greatest songwriters. This is a book of songs. There's not that much talk on, you know, song construction or chord progressions, that kind of stuff. It's about the lyrics. And for Paul to highlight himself in that way is very different and very brave. And it's just nice to see him put himself out there like that and say, yeah, you know what? Some of these songs ain't half bad. But yeah, come on, there have been a few obvious certain stinkers within Paul's body of work that definitely were not going to be included in this book, like Driving Rain, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, Let's Go For A Drive. I know not many of you are the greatest fans of the lyrics for Biker Like An Icon. There was a girl who liked a biker. She used to follow him across America, you know. But these are few and far between, and it seems to me that people tend to focus on these rare negatives and then take stock of the discography as a whole. And yeah... I know that, and yeah, I knew that obviously the book was mostly going to be stocked with the best of the best cherry-picked stuff, but, you know, going in, what I was going to be more intrigued by was the fact that Paul would likely be talking about lyrics that always haven't had the best reception. You know, what is Paul going to talk about that isn't always played on radios and playlists and compilations? And the fact that he was structuring his life around the lyrics meant that, you know, only a certain amount of the book could be Beatles and Wings stuff. If Paul was going to be telling a complete story of his life, then yeah, we would have to get 80s stuff, 90s stuff, all the way leading up to 
the present day, and that was exciting for me. For some, I imagine it would have made more sense for Paul to do a book on his melodies or songs in general without focusing on the lyrics, and whilst that book would make sense in being able to cover the entirety of McCartney's work, including things like instrumentals, dance music, and songs with even worse lyrics than probably what ended up in the book, I do have to admit that I really appreciated and admired this conceit. You know, maybe if Paul had the credit that he deserved throughout his career for his lyrics, then maybe this book would not have been done this way. But, you know, in the vein of silly love songs, this is a great little, not middle finger, but a bit of a thumbing of the chin to his critics. And it's going to be a fantastic chance to change opinions and redress some balance in this whole McCartney just writes silly love songs and ballads debate because it's not true. And that wasn't a Paul McCartney song title pun, by the way, I swear. Anyway, let's press on and talk about what is in the box. The box. The box. First of all, we have the first thing you see, which is the packaging, which, to be frank, is the highest of quality. Just looking at the thing and then touching it, it assures you that you've bought a quality product that is going to last on your shelf for generations to come. I love that the book is also in two volumes, which also gives a greatest appearance of value for money and as trite as this may sound the box is well made sturdy and overall gives off the impression that this is a work to be taken seriously and not another throwaway Beatles cash grab as any of you who have seen someone try and lift this thing up into frame on a youtube video it really is a titanic release not only is it so big that it had to be broken down into said two volumes as not to put too much strain on a single spine of a book as well as making it easier to physically read but it, it is also literally the single heaviest McCartney related release that I've ever owned and likely ever will own. I'd wager this thing weighs more than both the Let It Be box set and the Get Back book combined and that you could certainly do some damage with it if you were so inclined. One thing I did find slightly annoying with the two volumes being split up though is that the contents page is relegated entirely to the first volume meaning that if you wanted to search for something in the second volume, you also need to get out your first volume, if you don't want to go through alphabetically, that is. There's also the box art, which varies from edition to edition. The UK, possibly European version that I have, uses uh, well, recycles the image used for the Chaos and Creation in the Backyard album cover, which is the Mike McCartney photo entitled Our Kid Through Mum's Neck Curtains. I'm not sure how I feel about this repetition of imagery considering just how much unique and new photography is used within the book but in all fairness it is one of the starkest most nostalgic and powerful images of young Paul and it makes a lot of sense when you consider just how important his youth is in the book and how it colours everything else. Though I will say I certainly prefer it to the American slash non-European box art, which is basically just this plain dark teal box, which offers no indication that it's a McCartney work by glance alone. But the exclusive signed copies of the book, which are now going on eBay for like $2,000, $3,000, sports this bright, bold orange cover, which I certainly found to be more artistic and suave and eye-catching and, uh, yeah... If I'd have shelled out for that one, I certainly would have been very pleased. On to the words of the book now, and true to form, McCartney dedicates the text 
in the opening to his wife Nancy Cheval and his parents Mary and Jim McCartney. I suppose there are people out there who would have liked the book to have been dedicated also to Linda and or John, but the reason I imagine they weren't is just the fact that they both feature so prevalently throughout the book and in Paul's introduction anyway, and it would be rude for Paul to include Linda in the same dedication as his current romantic partner. Um, same reason for John, you know, that, 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 that that's his professional ex. You know, he doesn't want to slight Nancy in that way. Who would, though, in terms of his parents, whilst they are possibly even more present throughout the book, there is nothing controversial about dedicating any of your works to your mum and dad, is there? What did catch my eye, though, the first time I opened the book was that just before the contents page, there is an almost two-blank-page spread whereby the only text tucked away in the top left-hand part is a quote from William Shakespeare, of all people, and it reads, To thine own self be true. This quote comes from Act 1, Scene 3 of the Bard's seminal play Hamlet, you may have heard of it, and it is arguably one of the most famous utterances of any of his works. Not only does it highlight Paul Muldoon's point that we'll get onto in a second, that McCartney's cultural and literary references are indeed highly varied and far-reaching. Yeah, I know Hamlet isn't exactly the most obscure text by any means, but it still fits this theory, so whatever. But yeah, what this quote does do, more importantly, is that it establishes what could be perceived as Paul's own philosophical and lifestyle ethos right from the get-go. You know, this book is going to be about him bearing his soul, being honest, talking about his life honestly. And, you know, once you read that quote, you cannot help but think about it whenever you read about any of these songs. You know, he is being true to his own self in this book. Then, rather like the book that came before it with the Let It Be box set, the first proper bit of wordage we get in this book is a forward by none other than the Big Mac himself. Fortunately, this isn't a simple hand wave of a forward, and instead you really can tell that Paul put a lot of effort into introducing us to the world of this book in essay form. What it does do is that it acts as a wonderful tone setter, and it does give you the bare-bones details of his early life that you do need to know before embarking on a read like this one. What was sad, though, was to read that his memories of more recent events are harder to recall than the classic older ones, and not only does that lean into the, the pro-Beatle narrative with the Beatles getting the lion's share of material, but it also kind of makes you wish that this book was maybe like the third part in a series that he would have begun in his 30s, up, done again maybe like in the 90s, and then released the third one now. But, oh well, que sera, sera. Paul also sings the praises of his editor and partner on this book, Paul Muldoon, and points to the fact that they are both of Irish descent, being one of the strongest links between the two, and why their conversation worked so well in the way that they did. He also points out another helpful similarity between them in the fact that they are both poets, and he details how Muldoon avoids the pitfalls of a more typical style of journalism that neither of them have any interest in. Paul then points out directly in detail to the reader right away that the book you're about to read is not going to be full of gossipy revelations about rivalries with Yoko or John or be a book where every single word is going to be treated like it's this sacred text in a drawn out 
laborious way. You know, it's not going to be that overly analytical or a shockingly revealing expose. No, the book is meant to be much more like a collection of photographs that spark a certain series of memories within him. He also goes into this metaphor of a furniture maker and how a furniture maker could make the same chair over and over and that isn't a problem, but he hasn't progressed as an artist, which is a wonderful analogy for his own career because he does tend to do certain things over and over and over and still make it work. He does have his tropes and his stereotypes, if you will. But he also touches on the fact that, you know, two chairs are never really the same. So, you know, he doesn't actually do the same thing over and over again, and he does actually do a lot of varied things within his career. And, yeah, he has made many different chairs. Then we get to the big three influences across the majority of his writing. We get a whole load about his parents, including his upbringing, Jim Max jazz band, and his dad teaching him harmonies, as well as passing on his love of wordsmithery. His mother lingers here also, but more in the sense of her legacy and how she impacted him to the point whereby most of his songs are indeed about women. Then we get a shitload of John Lennon talk, which very much falls into the modern uh, dichotomy of the way Paul talks about John. You know, it's very sad, very mournful, very much bigging up John's role within the Beatles and within his own legacy, possibly more than than he should. If you want to know more about this, go and check out recent episodes of One Sweet Dream or Another Kind of Mind, where they've really gone into this a lot better than I ever could or will. Then we end on a sizable dedication just for the lovely Linda. Speaking of Linda, though, this then goes rather nicely into the next topic of the MPL archives. Basically, McCartney has had a team behind him for all these years, saving all of the best trinkets and relics from his career since the earliest days of the Beatles all the way up to the modern day. Basically, in the way that many of you now would have thrown away your valuable single sleeves, Paul, shockingly enough, throws away, you know, real treasures, and including lyric sheets. But this team has stopped all of that and made sure that one day maybe we'll get a McCartney museum. However, the most touching element here is that Paul cites Linda as being the earliest inspiration to collate and catalogue all of this stuff in the first place, as she was seemingly the first person to ever really convey to him how special all of this ephemera was. Paul then mentions that the archive has well over 50,000 items in said collection and that many of them will appear in the book in the form of pictures. Paul ends with some musings on fame and how far he's come, but like the rest of the forward, he brings it all back to the Beatles, to his father, and his philosophy that something will always happen. Also, this is the only passage that hints at any negativity in his life whatsoever, as he alludes to a few baddies. And I did find it amusing that he talks about how positive his fan interactions are, but he only mentions people talking to him about his music and not about signing autographs, because, of course, this book came out the week after Paul stopped signing autographs. I wonder if there was a, a passage in there about autographs maybe that had to be taken out at the last minute. That would have been very funny. But, yeah, McCartney's forward here, it was, it was stunningly well written, you know, uh, and it sets the tone, again, you know, the, the fact that 
Paul can write, you know, not just lyrics, but he can write in the form of an academic essay slash biography. You know, it really was touching and you couldn't help but read it and hear it in his voice. You know, ooh. Rather pleasantly, the next portion of the book is a note to the reader from the team at MPL who more than likely did the majority of the heavy lifting in terms of actually putting the book together, in terms of formatting, spell checking, typing and arrangement. The section was pretty brief and it didn't need to be any longer at all. And essentially it was more of an explanation about how the book was going to be presented, how the lyrics were going to be presented and the methodology behind collating all the facts and figures you were about to read, especially like dates and releases and stuff like that. One thing they do highlight here, and it's a bit of a pet peeve of mine, is that they wanted to avoid repetition of lines within songs for the sake of it, even if the lyrics don't match the final song. And I get that with tracks like Check My Machine, because it would just be the phrase Check My Machine hundreds and hundreds of times over. But I am a stickler for having lyrics being fully presented with backing vocals included in brackets and all. But that is the most minor of gripes. And hey, the fact that they even included this methodology segment made me appreciate the book all the more again. You know, it made it feel very professional, very intentional. In third place, we get to the second Paul of this work, the other me, if you will, in the form of Paul Muldoon. This section is more about the history of the compiling of information that went into this book, and he details the conversations that inspired the book, you know, starting from, you know, real-life conversations in New York around five years ago, going all the way through to the modern pandemic era, where the last of their conversations were done via Skype or Zoom, that kind of thing. He also offers more detail on Paul's own history, pointing out things that McCartney may have not mentioned himself, such as the fact that Paul is a prolific painter, the fact that he was part of the very first generation to benefit from free cross-class education from the 1944 UK Education Act, as well as the influence of his high school teacher, Arthur Durband. The main point that Muldoon makes in this segment, though, harkens back to a point I touched on with the Shakespeare quote at the start of the book. And without any sense of corporate brown-nosing or turning this book into a hagiography, Muldoon espouses the true artistic talents and far-reaching references that McCartney is available to draw upon. You know, McCartney likes a lot of stuff. He likes a lot of people. He's very well-read. People including Shakespeare, yes, but also Dylan Thomas, Sean O'Casey, Eugene O'Neill, The Goon Show, Lord Byron, John Cage, Karl-Heinz Stockhausen, and Ken Dodd. He then sets up something that McCartney will be referring to throughout the book, and that is his uniquely filmic or playwright sensibility in the way that he constructs and writes his songs. Of course, the best example is the song that he uses, which is Eleanor Rigby, it's a song with three acts. We're introduced to each of the main characters in Acts 1 and 2, and they come together in an unexpected way for Act 3. He points out that many more of Paul's songs are like this than you expect, and that Paul's extensive knowledge of films, plays, and radio plays, of which McCartney references dozens of times throughout the book, has definitely informed the way that he builds a narrative and connects with his audience. Macca spends a lot of time on characters, places, emotions, people, all things that literally build up a picture in your mind. And he plays with them in a very filmic, beginning and end, structured sort of way. Though 
What the most important thing I'd argue that Muldoon here is to dispel the myth that Paul can write these songs in his sleep or on autopilot or simply by magic. I know that I've sometimes used that as an offhand reference to a song that I might find quite middling, but what Muldoon wants to emphasise here is that Paul and all of his writings are done with a real intent, a purpose, and are written intentionally. You know, it's not by accident. He leaves no room in your mind than to assume anything other that McCartney's genius is meaningful and done with a serious care and consideration. And you have to adopt that same kind of care and consideration when analysing Paul's lyrics and reading about them before launching into the book. It really is a wonderful part of the text and, again, reaffirms what your mindset should be before going in. Anyway, now that I've overanalyzed the first 10 pages or so of the book, I will now move on to a more generalised approach to the content, as from this point on, it literally is just the 154 songs. In terms of presentation, each song is shown exactly the same. You'll have the title and the lyrics on the left-hand side of the page with the lyrical analysis and biography on the right-hand side, typically going on to a second page followed by images, though the length does vary from song to song with songs like Let It Be and Yesterday and Hey Jude predictably having very long segments and other songs barely even covering a single page. Again, as to be expected, because Paul is covering a very wide breadth of songs in his career. Let's start off first with how the lyrics and songs are approached by McCartney. Of course, as per the title of the book, the information is going to be about lyrics and is written from the perspective definitively of Paul as a lyricist and songwriter first, not as a musician. So, you know, he's going to be talking about the lyrics of the song more specifically and if he is going to talk about songwriting it's rarely going to be about bass lines or drums or wider production elements and instead it's going to take the viewpoint of whatever instrument he was working on which 99% of the time will be a guitar or piano and if there are any insights into musicality that's where they'll lie. Like yeah Paul will occasionally talk about another artist or musician's contribution to a song such as Hugh McCracken's solo during My Love, or George's riff that gave birth to And I Love Her, but they are definitely written more within the context of the biographical nature of the book. They're not particularly broken down, it's more the stories from his perspective as to how they came about. Though there are other songs, like Only Mama Knows, where he does air towards a slightly more technical breakdown of the procedure. First and foremost, though, this is a book about words, the choices behind words, and how said words relate to or remind him of moments in his life. With each song, Paul will normally talk about who or what inspired the lyrics, what real-life references he was making within the lyrics, what elements of the lyrics he thinks makes them strong, why some were chosen or even rewritten. Fortunately for the reader, in terms of the methodology, he doesn't approach two songs in the same way. And not only does it highlight how varied his approach to songwriting is, but it also makes for a far more enjoyable and engaging reading experience. Of course, as Muldoon pointed out in his own introduction, Paul also refers to many of his songs as either films, plays, teleplays, screenplays, or even short novels. And the analogy really does help paint a picture of what Paul is trying to convey with a particular song or lyric. 
Now, I should point out that this is not a book of musicology. Don't get me wrong, there are fleeting moments where Paul discusses how he likes the chord progressions of a song or how certain musical choices create a certain feeling, especially when in relation to the lyrics. But this isn't an academic breakdown of chord structure or anything like that. If you're looking for the reasoning as to why a certain note was played or why G major was better than F sharp, then this isn't going to be the book for you. However, what you do get from time to time, especially with the solo stuff, is insights into songs that you never would have expected. Of course, many of you may already know this stuff as more veteran McCartney fans than I, but I, for one, learnt a lot, including the fact that Great Day from Flaming Pie was written during the early 70s. I never knew that San Ferian was part of Pun's penchant for French pun phrases, uh, this one specifically being San Ne San Saneferien, which literally translated means nothing to worry about. And he also talks about how he has another song about sausages, a pun on sausages or something like that. And that's going to be coming out one day, maybe. I never knew that Do It Now was a reference to Jim McCartney getting Paul to literally sweep up horseshit on the street. I never knew how deep set the narrative and stage play aspect went into the construction of a song like Single Pigeon. And I never knew that Arrow Through Me was literally meant to be about Cupid's arrow going through them, but it was meant to be in a negative, like he was spit taking a spin on that whole imagery. You know, the list goes on. On the whole, I very much enjoyed this aspect of the book. As I said earlier, I always revel in hearing this type of analysis from the horse's mouth. And whilst it was nor was it ever going to be as in-depth or as deeply academic as I would have liked. There was still a definite expertise that was very present in all of his writings. Like, he still knows all of these songs inside out, and he knows why they are the way they are. And yeah, his writing was still very much presented in that kind of matter-of-fact. It was all rather natural and indescribable you know, that kind of manner in which he's always talked about his music. But I do know that I came away knowing more about the lyrics specifically and more so how he feels about them and the songs as a whole. So now that we've covered the main section of the book in terms of what was on the front cover, we also now have to, to discuss the other main element of the book, which actually may exceed 50% of the actual content therein, and that is the autobiographical element of Paul's writings. The text itself is highly conversational in its prose. This leads to a lot of stories being linked directly to the songs themselves, as well as some seemingly wildly unrelated digressions. And, you know, whilst Paul does still bring it round full circle and make you, and make you go, oh, that's how A connected to B, there is very much this sense that the songs themselves are mostly just jumping off points to kickstart Paul's own memory. This leads to a bit of a chicken and the egg debate, whereby you wonder whether Paul remembers these songs because they existed slash were written at an important time in his life, or whether he remembers these parts of his life because that's when he was writing certain songs. And yeah, obviously the biography isn't as clustered. There are slight gaps in his life and you kind of wish that he had written songs during certain points in his life so that maybe we would have had the entire beginning and end but again that was 
going to be very difficult to do unless you would have ended up with a bunch of songs that he might not have that much care for, but he would have had to have written about them just to keep the flow going. And I know he was never going to do that. And a lot of that is down to the organisation of the songs, which we'll get onto shortly. Anyway, where the tangents crop up within these narratives is as random as anything. Uh, and there's a definite imbalance as to how much of each song is about analysis and how much is about biography. For example, with And I Love Her, we do start out with quite a bit of detail about the song and its writing, but then the lion's share of material is dedicated to Paul recollecting his time with Jane Asher before then dovetailing back to the track at the end. Many other songs, though, like Let Me Roll It or Love Me Do, begin with the digression, usually about John or Linda, before then using that as a jumping-off point to masterfully relate it back to the rest of the track. Other songs, like Penny Lane or The End, are almost, if not entirely, not about the specific lyrics themselves, and are instead insights into Paul McCartney's headspace at the time, and are just chock-a-block with references and inspirations. Then you also have tracks like Ticket to Ride, or Ghosts of the Past Left Behind, Check My Machine, or My Valentine, which eschew any uh, lyrical analysis or any talk about the song and are literally just presented as they've been taken out of a direct biography, which may seem like it's missing the point, but as far as I'm concerned, it gives away far more revealing elements about McCartney's life than I think he ever would have intended. But that's the nature of McCartney. At the end of the day, these biographical elements are less of a flowing narrative and more of a bunch of self-contained snapshots of Paul's life that you as a reader have to piece together as you go, which, admittedly, is easier than you'd first think once you get going. Paul, if ever, rarely does things by an established playbook and always strives to create something new and a little more artistic and unique, and he rarely ever takes boredom lying down. He had to create a book that he would be interested in, in doing, and this is what interested him. So as far as I'm concerned, it makes total sense that Paul decided to construct this lyrical analysis book slash biography, merge them together and construct it in this particular way. It is a very unique reading experience. You know, each song you do kind of have a little slightly different flavour. And whilst you are learning a lot, both about the songs and his life, it never feels laborious. It never feels heavy handed or overly serious in its tone. Paul's having fun with the book and therefore you're having fun reading it. Then let's talk about how the songs are organised and why they are presented in the, in the way they are. As detailed in the methodology at the start of the book, it points out straight away that the songs are going to be presented in alphabetical order rather than chronological order. The first effect of this is that the book never feels too strict or standardised as how you are meant to read through it. You can do it one way, you can do it another, though the strict lack of chronology gives the text much more of a conversational and freewheeling atmosphere to it, which makes sense as it was constructed from five years' worth of conversations with Paul Muldoon. But yeah, it almost feels like you yourself have mentioned a song to McCartney and then he very naturally, coincidentally, has been reminded of some events surrounding that song and he's just started talking about it. It's all another element of Paul's refusal to write a standard biography. And like I say, 
as you go through the book in this scattershot form, you do end up with a rather detailed tapestry much quicker than you'd think. The other notable reason for the songs being organised in this way, and this is probably the most important part, is that it highlights the importance of how Paul McCartney's entire career as a songwriter and lyricist should be taken equally as seriously. I'm sure Paul was more than aware of the fact that the large majority of readers would simply get to 1970 and stop reading if it was done in chronological order. Why? Because they're fucking idiots. And so the decision to organise things alphabetically does force the reader to read through the book if they're going to do it properly, and therefore and therefore, Paul's life, if they're going to do it properly, with equal interest and care, lest they want to flip back and forth through these two heavy tomes. So if they aren't interested in Arrow Through Me or The Other Me, then it's really going to do their arms in. So... Save your arms the trouble. Realise his solo work is as good as his Beatles work. Read about it, enjoy it, learn it, and maybe have your mind changed by the man himself. Again, I really appreciated this decision, both by Paul and by the people putting the book together. It keeps it very fresh. It reads much more uh, freshly and joyously than if it was going chronologically. Like, oh... I'm expecting what's to come next. I mean, if you don't go through the contents page and you do go in blind, you know, each new page is a revelation. It's like, oh, we're going to be talking about this song now. I love this one. And that's quite exciting as a reader. And just to put things into perspective as to where Paul's memories and important moments of his life lie, let's just break the book, these books, down into periods eras or career phases in total i counted 154 songs and they are divided as thus across the two tomes in terms of beatles numbers we have 65 songs wings the eternal neglected child gets a respectable 32 tracks his solo work has a much greater than expected total of 49 numbers and finally in the other category which i'll go into shortly we have eight songs and yeah, what songs did Paul put into this book? Well, unsurprisingly, the main meat of the book is Beatles songs. And if it was a Beatles hit, it's definitely included in this book. But it was rather pleasant to find out that the songs themselves still make up less than half of the text, at least, you know, in terms of selections, I'm sure, with the lengthier ones like, again, Hey Jude, Let It Be yesterday they probably do make up closer to half the actual physical wordage of the book but the fact that we get more than half of the songs from his post-1970 career it again highlights how important that phase of his life was and I'm very pleased with Paul making this move you know highlighting the fact that his other work is just as good despite how much of a Beatles fan he is these days and how easy it would have been for him just to have made a Beatles book and pleased the publishers. Again, the varied nature of this book and the breadth of songs means you get to see the full spectrum of Macca's lyrics and, again, ensures you're not going to get bored reading this. I really have to reinforce this, folks. You know, as expected, there's plenty of songs that are the Lennon-McCartney compositions, but you also get quite a few that 
highlight McCartney's other collaborations with other writers as well as his solo stuff. You know, you, you, you get stuff featuring Denny Lane, Eric Stewart, Elvis Costello, Youth, and of course, Linda McCartney, as well as the collabs that weren't really collabs like Stevie Wonder and Michael Jackson. Actually, speaking of Michael Jackson, as we know, Paul has several talking points that he will always bring up and certain classic moments from his, his history that he would feel remiss if he didn't bring up. And there are certain songs like Say, 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 or I Want to Be Your Man, or even Temporary Secretary, the show's theme, which jump out as being included purely for the fact that they do relate to some historically significant moment rather than being the best lyric ever. And whilst that may annoy some, it does cover the biography a little more than it would have otherwise. And again, it's really cool and really Paul. That being said, and I will be going through the specific songs in a second, but I would be being incredibly dishonest if I didn't point out that it's clear that Paul also obviously included some songs that are just lyrics that he likes, as opposed to being critically lauded. Again, whether it's because they remind him of an aforementioned historical event or person or feeling, or even if he just likes the lyrics out of context, he has indeed included them. The fact that certain songs may not have been included may have more to do with the fact that the memories have not stayed with him as they are simply not important to him more than the ideas that other songs were pushed by either himself, Muldoon, MPL or the publishers. As I mentioned earlier, as heavily implied by the title, the book only focuses on songs that have lyrics and therefore I wasn't expecting much talk on Thrillington or The Fireman or his classical works or any instrumentals. However, there were many surprise inclusions in the book. Let's first run through the songs that I put into my other category, uh, listed in alphabetical order, as the Pauls would appreciate. We have Come and Get It, which became a single for Badfinger. There's Goodbye, which became a single for Mary Hopkin. Both of these songs get nice little background stories about those figures. You've got Ghosts of Past Left Behind, a classical composition from the Liverpool Oratorio. You've got I Lost My Little Girl, which of course was one of his first ever compositions and eventually made its way onto the MTV Unplugged, the official bootleg album. You've got In Spite of All the Danger, the very first Lennon-McCartney composition to ever be put to record. There's Nothing Too Much Just Out of Sight, a track by The Fireman from the Electric Arguments album. There's Simple As That. Not the awesome electronic demo from the Pubs of Peace sessions, but the song from the Anti-Heroin Project album. And then you've got The World You Are Coming Into, which is yet another track from the Liverpool Oratorio. Two entries from that album, something I was very surprised by indeed. Then you have just a bunch of songs that I never knew Paul would have rated as being amongst his best lyrics. And perhaps maybe some of these are those sentimental choices I mentioned earlier. And whether they do or do not uh, have any importance in terms of Paul's biography or memory, I was still pleasantly flabbergasted that I got to read about them. Songs like Cook at the House, San Ferrian, The Note You Never Wrote, All From Wings at the Speed of Sound, The Other Me, Magneto Entertainium Man, Check My Machine, Cafe on the Left Bank, Single Pigeon, Getting Closer, Hope of Deliverance, and Pretty Little Head. Though this wasn't the only surprise in this book, as the elves at MPL, during their mining of the McCartney archive, actually managed to unearth an unrecorded, unreleased, but still very much written Beatles composition. 
The song is called Tell Me Who He Is. And whilst, you know, Paul confesses to barely being able to remember it at all in any detail, I did have a blast reading about his attempts to guess what it may have sounded like if it was recorded, as well as the nuanced insights it gave into the McCartney-Lennon writing partnership. And finally, speaking of the elves at NPL, as I mentioned earlier, there has been an extensive team behind Paul's collection, which has been catalogued and keyworded in its entirety. You know, all of these trinkets, relics, lyric sheets and photographs over the years and such. And thankfully, loads of it is in the book. Yeah, it's only a small fraction of a percent of the items that are in the McCartney vaults, and it certainly would make it a great book in its own right. But I must point out how many unique pictures are in this book. There are so many lyric sheets that I didn't know existed from Beatles era, Wings era and the solo stuff. There were so many photographs, particularly ones taken by Linda that I'd never seen before. Oh, and the doodles, like so many McCartney doodles are in this book and they are fucking awesome. Yeah, some people may accuse this book of being a little overstuffed with pictures, but the fact that literally every song has an appropriate series of images and photos to go along with it not only creates a more 3D picture in your mind and, you know, goes along with that filmic uh, way that Paul presents his songs by literally giving you images, but it points to the fact that, yeah, his whole life has been told through words and images, and it is all documented. You know, it really gives you that solid through line. And how could you not include them when he is the cute beetle and takes such good photos in the first place? Like I say, the doodles are charming as hell. And the whole thing is another unexpectedly candid window into a man who is notoriously private. And for that, I'm again bowled over and very grateful Again, I cannot reinforce how many unrecycled and new images are in this book. And for some of you, I know that that will be worth the price alone. Kudos and shout out to the team at MPL. And there we are, folks. That is the end of my look at the contents of the book. And I know I've given some clues as to how I feel about a lot of the book in general. But let's let's give it an overall plenary review what do I think of Paul McCartney, the lyrics by Paul McCartney and Paul Muldoon? In short, it's brilliant. I love it. I wholeheartedly give this book a two thumbs up, an eight out of 10, an 85%, four stars, whatever you want to call it. I, I really, really enjoyed reading through it and I'm really glad I own it. And I'm so thankful that my wonderful patrons were able to purchase it for me. You know, I was a skeptic when it was first announced. I was like, oh, you know, what can we really learn? How well written can this be? And yeah, I've I've been converted. I really have. Um, I know that I'm going to be rereading this uh, very, very soon, not in a kind of critical way, just to enjoy the book. Can't wait for that. And you're definitely going to hear me reading quotes from this book in all future album reviews. Um yeah, go and pick up a copy, folks. Go and pick yourselves up a copy. I, I, I know it's expensive in stores and on McCartney's websites, but you can pick it up on cheaper, evil online stores, I'm sure. Um, the one thing I will say, as long as you go into this 
knowing that this isn't going to be a full song by song breakdown or a full autobiography, but something much more unique, artistic, and McCartney esque, then you're definitely going to enjoy it. The format is really interesting, it reinforces the artistry and genius of McCartney, but it's never heavy handed, it's never a slog to read. It's very buoyant, it's bouncy, it's varied, it's very easy to read through, and it's just enjoyable. I can't say too much more than that. (laughs) I just really enjoyed the book, folks, and for me, as someone who finds it quite hard to enjoy a book, you really should know that that's quite the review. And yeah, that is it, folks. That has been my review and analysis and look into Paul McCartney, the lyrics by Paul McCartney and Paul Muldoon. I am sure Denny Lane has already started playing us out, but stick around for next week or next episode by the time this actually comes out. This is like the, the second time I've had to do this episode now. Um, but yeah, we're going to be doing Grand Dude's Green Submarine. We're going to go from one very serious text to one not so serious but it's all still McCartney keep listening to Paul keep listening to the Beatles keep reading about Paul and the Beatles specifically this is part of a quite long running series of book reviews we're going to be doing here on the show leading us up to Peter Jackson's The Beatles Get Back triple documentary series that's the real one we're looking forward to I am sure but yeah thank you for listening to another episode of Paul or Nothing folks Harry Harry Krishna Peace and love, peace and love. Play us out, Danny. Okay. With Siggy in mouth.
It should fade out at the end anyway, so there was enough to fade out. Is that all right? <laughs> 